every time your horse has an update, you just slide it over, you get to check in on, on that horse. And, you know, we have racing managers who get, capture the content themselves or coordinate the access to content for every horse. And we try to give you, you know, backstop, you know, behind the scenes inform- information from, from the barn, obviously training information, um, interviews with trainers, uh, we'll do features sometimes on Maybe it's like a really cool story with about the groom that manages your, you know, that, that looks after your horse. Um, so there's a media component and an editorial component that's really entertaining. Howdy, and welcome to Horse People, a podcast diving into the stories behind some of the world's everyday questions. My goal is to weave a narrative about entrepreneurs, equine professionals, and horseback riders alike, and the stories about the lives they've built. I'm your host, Gideon Kutkowski. My name is Shona Rotundo, and I am the head of marketing for My Racehorse US. I'm also the co-founder of Grand Slam Social, which is an all-female-run agency that specializes in services for equestrian and horse racing companies. Nice. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, So one of the things that I know I'm really curious about are, it's kind of two-pronged, but in the same thread, which is what is my racehorse's founding story? And then what is your story into my racehorse, which is kind of like, yeah. you know, it's an interesting story from, from what I've gathered. So uh, let's start <laughs> my racehorse and then we can go into the next one. Yeah, they dovetail really nicely because Grand Slam was actually hired. So Grand Slam Social, the, the company that I co-founded, was hired to launch the social media platforms for my racehorse. But my resource started off, um, our CEO, Michael Barons. he actually came from what we call the real world. Uh, mm-hmm. He had his own company for uh, several years, which he sold. And then he worked at Casper Mattress and the marketing uh, team there. And so he had huge budgets and big ideas and was part of this company that, that grew really quickly. Um, so he comes to the table with a lot of knowledge and a lot of belief in making things that feel or seem impossible possible. So he's been an awesome leader for the team at My Racehorse. And he, you know, I think a lot of people thought of fractional ownership in the past and tried and and maybe failed because it's crazy difficult to get through the red tape associated with making it um, an SEC qualified product. So he launched the brand initially in California, uh, and then it took almost a year to get it approved across the U.S., uh, and so during that time period, I was speaking at a conference, the Racetrack Industry Program Symposium, and I was on a, a social media conference. And he had come to the conference, I'm sure, to kind of immerse himself in the world of, of, of the, you know, the horse racing world. He'd come in as a fan, but had never really worked in it before. And he he was like, oh, well, I need, I need obviously need Grand Slam Social to, to run our social media because they, they know what they're doing and they're, they're the, the women for the job in this space. So he reaches out to me on LinkedIn and I don't see it. Like I don't check my LinkedIn message for two months. And I think, you know, there's a lot of excuses if you miss a a message, you know, for a week or, oh, I was on vacation or or whatever, but there's really no excuse for a two month silence. So I just reached back out to him and I was, I was like, I got to tell you, I, this is just a fail. Like I don't check my messages enough on, on LinkedIn um, but if you're still interested and need us, we're, we're yeah. here for you. So set up a call and within a couple of weeks, we were, we're signed, sealed, delivered, and we, we launched the My Resource social platforms. 
Let's go. <laughs> That's awesome. It's like such an interesting story because uh, one, Michael seems to have just come in through it from a fan perspective. So I think maybe he had the, uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but he might've had like the, the naivete, so to speak, to go into it and say, you know what, this is possible. Whereas someone who's in the industry knows like how difficult it might've been. Right. Yeah. It's something that the industry struggles with that you're, you hit the nail on the head with the naivete or, or basically just like having been battered so many times in the past of trying something interesting and new. And I just think that comes with the territory of a business that's steeped in a lot of history, like a very, you know, deep roots and, and background, and this is the way it's done. And so trying anything new is, is difficult. I mean, you see a lot of the same patterns in TV, you know, the companies who've innovated in TV and embrace streaming and, OTT, like they, they're, they're a lot further along than the, than the, the companies that might've resisted and tried to revive, um, you know, the old ways. So I don't, the old ways are, they're, they're done. They're not ever coming back. So we just have to figure out a way to make horse racing accessible and exciting and interesting and give people permission to be part of the sport in the modern age. And, and that's what we're trying to do at my resource. Yeah, Totally. I think that's so cool. And so how did you get into my race course? I know you guys met at this conference, but how did you end up being full-time at my race horse? So we worked together, uh, through, you know, as an agency partner, um, so 2018, 2019, 20. So in late 29, no, in late 2020, um, right after authentic won the Kentucky Derby, um, and the Breeders' Cup Classic, it was like an explosion for my resource. I mean, that totally changed the game. We were able to do something that people spend their entire lives in the business trying to accomplish. Um, and within just a few short years, it happened for us. And the timing couldn't have been worse because we didn't have enough inventory on the site. And it just was, um, we, you know, we weren't necessarily prepared for that level of, um, of influx of, of new customers. So, uh, it, it, but it was great. Like growth is growth and you'll take it at any point, regardless of whether you're prepared. And so we brought in a ton of new people. And at that time, you know, just everything about the business was changing and the team needed to grow and the thinking needed to get bigger. And so, you know, for a while, Michael had said, you know, what's, what's going to take to get you to come over to my resource full time. And I was like, well, you're going to have to buy my company because, um, we, you know, but all these people's jobs depend on, on Grand Slam Social. And we've been around for a while and, you know, we built it from the ground up, my, my, uh, co-founder Molly Cyber and I. And so he was like, all right, let's talk. And I just, I remember that text exchange and I was just like, what's happening. So we jump on the phone and, um, me, Michael and Molly just start to have a couple conversations. And we're like, is there a world where we could somehow combine forces? And we ended up doing it. So, Experiential Square, which is the parent company of my racehorse. So Molly and I still are part, you know, we're still involved, um, retain a little bit of ownership, but um, it, it, it helped a lot to, to have that sort of backing and that support. Um, and so Grandson's doing great. I mean, there can, the head of operations, Kaylin Christofferson is now running the show over there. She rebuilt a team. Um, you know, we, we have most of our clients stuck around, they're great to work with. We kind of changed the offerings a little bit to be more, a little more consulting focused. We're launching some boot camps uh, in Q4 for for people who are 
just looking to educate themselves further on how to manage social media um, and how to oversee people who manage your social media. Because I think that's also a challenge that a lot of people, you know, in C-suites or directors tend to face when you're looking at a platform like social that changes so rapidly. Mm-hmm. Um, so both, yeah, the evolution of Grand Slam has has been exceptional and we're happy with where everything is there. Uh, and then now I've kind of shifted over into more of a traditional marketing role for my racehorse. So dealing with all the excitement of CRM management and, and sales and growth and partnerships and, and things like that. Yeah, totally. Something that I feel uh, tied tied to, you know, I'm, I'm in marketing at a B2B tech startup here in St. Louis. So I, I totally get what you're up against. It's a tough, it's tough for sure, especially in this market and stuff, but um, wow. So exciting. Uh, I think one thing that you mentioned that I definitely wanted to touch on and I'm glad that you, that you touched on was the authentic uh, winning the Kentucky Derby. I'm so curious, like there's kind of a flow here, right? Like how does my racehorse decide to buy a certain horse? And also they're like super expensive. So like, how does that, (laughs) how does that all work together? It's tricky. Uh, so we have a bloodstock team who's exceptional. Um, Roddick Washman is our, our head of, head of bloodstock and he works with several team members. They go to the sales, they scour the sales. It's kind of your most logical place to pick up bloodstock and Roderick and his team really focus on who are the right horses, a, from a financial standpoint, but also how fun is it going to be to go to the track and like see your horse win in these big races on these big days. Uh, it's always a really fun conversation. And I think the compromise is really what ends up being like the best balance of, of stable offerings. So we have some yearlings, we have some two-year-olds, um, I'm still fighting for horses of racing age to kind of return to the product lineup, which we're, we're close uh, in terms of uh, the third sort of elephant in the room, which is um, the SEC qualification. So it's tougher to get certain horses approved by the SEC in terms of um, whether we own a majority or minority and, and things like that. So there's a lot of complexity to the product uh, before you guys even see it on the site. Mm, that makes sense. And also, just for clarity, Bloodstock, you're referring to the horses that my racehorse owns in your own stable, right? Yeah, just the horses. So like our products, Bloodstock, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's the horse itself. Yeah. So then let's talk about the experience, right? Like <laughs> how, okay. So my racehorse went out, bought Authentic. It was already proven. How does that translate into the, like now users eyes, like, Okay, so you get to buy into this horse puzzle pieces there to 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 add to. Yeah, I remember when Authentic was going in the gate at the Haskell and like we had shares left. We struggled to sell that horse. Like we couldn't get all the shares purchased. Um and if you spend a lot on a horse, then it's going to be more expensive, right? Like mm-hmm. so you need you need more shares in order to have it be an affordable amount. Um so we had quite a bit of inventory around him, but you know, we, we, it was, it was a struggle at the end to, to get him sold. And, um, it's so funny. Cause like, if you look back, I mean, he was 206 bucks. It's like, and then he goes on and wins the Derby in the Breeders' Cup Classic, which only a couple horses have ever done. So I think, um, once, you know, once you were in, uh, the product was also so new, it was still so new. I think more, you know, we're bigger now and more people have experienced what it's all about. Um, but the journey has been awesome. Like, I mean, there's nothing better than 
winning and the, it was crazy ironic that we couldn't be there at the Breeders' Cup or the Derby because of COVID. And so everyone had experienced this from home. And I mean, it was a total bummer that we couldn't physically be there, but there was also this like element of just camaraderie and togetherness and excitement and hope and like this awesome moment and just what was a terrible time for so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really fun to bring to people at that time that they, that they really needed it. And so the authentic fans and community have been, you know, they're our diehards, like they're, they're awesome. And I think they've really fueled, you know, additional investment into the product and also brought their friends in and and got people interested. So I think overall, there's nothing better than a winner like that, that can just really be um, the kind of horse that like finds its place in your heart. Mm-hmm. And now he's got his babies and they're going to start running. So we're going to, I mean, they're ways away. They just, um, his first full crop would just hit the ground this past season. And he just bred oh. his second season of mares. So, um, they're not quite there yet, but when they start running, I mean, how exciting is that going to be to see your horse's babies out there, um, performing on the track. So there's still a lot of excitement ahead for the owners of that horse. Yeah, that's awesome. And so when you become an owner, like, what does that look like in the lifespan of the horse? What happens when it retires? Like what happens if it decides, you know, I come from a polo background. So a lot of horses on the polo field are ex race horses, right. That couldn't mm-hmm. quite make it. Like what if that there's a, uh, my race horse horse that doesn't quite run as, as expected. And so they retire them and someone from the polo world picks them up. Like, is there, yeah. So I'm just curious, like what happens post post race or post my yeah. race? We partner with several aftercare organizations. Um, a portion of sales goes back to Thoroughbred Aftercare Association, the TAA. Uh, we also work with new vocations and, and other um, thoroughbred aftercare facilities that help us find, you know, place the horse, whether in a forever home, just as a pet, or um, if they are capable of, of being retrained and going on to a second career, then that's obviously the, the number one goal ahead of anything else. So we've had a few that have gone on. Um, I think one of our horses, uh, Solar Strike, recently entered his first horse show. Uh, he's jumping now. Um, and I think, you know, some who knows, sometimes horses, their heart's not in it and they just don't feel like running fast, but that doesn't mean that they can't be awesome in, in other environments. So we do look to find the right future for them in the long term. And then just check in with uh, our owners periodically. And um, as those stories become available, we have an aftercare spotlight that we share around in our monthly newsletter. So there's still an opportunity to keep tabs on some of the horses that have come through, through my racehorse. Yeah. So um, my racehorse, it started in California and it's expanded into so many different countries. And you're kind mm-hmm. of like overseeing that expansion what's been like the biggest challenge right now for going from the US to Ireland to UK to Australia, like from your perspective? Yeah. Um, I think that, so Australia is crushing it. Like they're, they're really doing great. Um, it was just a matter of, it was the first market we expanded into after the US. So we worked out a lot of the kinks in terms of the technology. Um, you know, we share the same kind of tech infrastructure. So recreating the AU environment so that it, you know, it looks like an Australia business and all the visuals are aligned with what that community wants to see in their marketing. That was like kind of the initial challenge of getting up and running. 
Um, but the team who runs it out there now has just totally embraced everything that is my racehorse, like the experience, um, you know, how to communicate, how to sell. So I think that that's, that's doing really well. And I think the natural, um, culture in Australia is very, like they celebrate racing in a way that America might not. Um, and they are so familiar with betting and, and punting and all that. So I think that the experience is a little bit more commonplace. And so something like my resource where you can get in through micro shares is, uh, is well-received. That being said, there's also, you know, more competition. And, and we've seen that a lot in the UK because they didn't have the SEC restrictions that we've, that, you know, that we face here. So the ability to buy uh, into a horse and be an owner at a low price point is not a novelty thing. It's not new. So just breaking into an existing market in the UK has been difficult. And, you know, we're still kind of in soft launch mode over there in the UK and Ireland, just trying to navigate the space and figure out who the right partners are. Mm. Um, I think that's huge for credibility too, with anything new. So here in America, you know, we had Spendthrift and, and they really helped us a lot. Um, we're working on some new partnerships as well. So just finding that right combination of uh, partners in the UK and, and also in Australia, I think has been an important element of their growth. But, you know, Australia's had a little bit longer to do their thing and they're really doing great. And um, I think, you know, in the next six months or so, I think we'll see a lot of growth out of the UK market as well, UK and Ireland. Six months, that's pretty soon. Like, that's pretty quick. If it's in six months, you know, at least in, in terms of uh, business world, I guess, in, in my yeah. head, six months is is like a fast turnaround for, for a whole new expansion into a whole new market. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, especially with the, um, you know, just with the general navigation of different infrastructure, like the way racing is managed, the way the tracks are managed, how they communicate with each other. I mean, it's completely different world. It's the same thing, like it's racing, but it's so different. So I think just trying to get our wrap our heads around how it all, how it all operates and what elements we can take from the U S and apply to other regions and what ones we have to start from scratch with has been a learning experience. Mm. Is there one that stands out to you as the the biggest like difference or are they pretty much just like little nuances here and there? Uh, it's a lot of things that add up to, yeah. I mean, I, like I haven't been, I mean, I, I connect with the team in the UK and I was part of the, the original kind of game plan. Um, but then it was kind of pulled more back into us operations with just so much happening here in the U S like it just was not possible to really be involved in the other markets as they grew so sort of the original game plan and construct was like, okay, here's how we did it here. Here's what, you know, here's what I think you can take from, from my learning. So you don't have to start from ground zero. Uh, that was definitely part of it. And I still am involved in the UK from a paid media standpoint, at least for, for digital. Uh, and me and Ben and I, who's the Shona of Australia, I call him, we talk, you mm-hmm. know, monthly and go over kind of our learnings and what we can share with each other. But in terms of how those markets have evolved from an operations standpoint, yeah, you'd have to have them on as your next guest. So yeah. I could talk <laughs> all about it. Yeah, I would love that. Okay, so another thing that I hear us talking about a lot is like the experience from an owner's perspective is, you know, part, I would argue, is like the most important part of the entire like company, right? Because if you're not having a good experience as an owner, what keeps you coming back? And so 
I'm curious what what's the what's the experience like for for folks and owners who who want to get more into into racing? There's a lot that you can that you can do with my racers from an experience standpoint. So at the core for every single owner, you have the app, right? You have this technology that allows you to follow training and everything about your horse and it's delivered right to your mobile app. So you get push notifications every time your horse has an update, you just slide it over, you get to check in on, on that horse. And, you know, we have racing managers who get, capture the content themselves or coordinate the access to content for every horse. And we try to give you, you know, back, you know, behind the scenes information from, from the barn, obviously training information, um, interviews with trainers, uh, we'll do features sometimes on maybe it's like a really cool story with about the groom that manages your, you know, that, that looks after your horse. Um, so there's a media component and an editorial component that's really entertaining. And when you buy a horse, it's a one-time payment, right? So you buy in and you never have to pay out of pocket after that. So if, you know, you buy in and the horse isn't in, in work and, and, in uh, you know, racing for several years, you're getting years and years of content about this horse. Um, so that's number one. Number two, we try to uh, make it accessible to come out and see your horse and or go to events at the track. So we do farm tours, obviously scale is an issue. There's a lot of owners. So we try to do, we do like a lottery system or first come first serve when you're sort of buying um, tickets to these events. But the events team is really trying to um, evolve the events and experiences component of, of ownership and host big days at the track or bring you out to, to the backside uh, for a farm tour. We also have this thing called the Ocala Showcase that we do. So a lot of the horses that we buy at the yearling sales will then go into the breaking and training process and they head down south. Uh, so they're in Ocala and we'll bring, I think last year we brought like 300 owners out to see the horses. And he, it's like, it's a showcase. So you're kind of hearing about how their training is going. You know, they pray the horses one at a time, talk about each horse. Um, so it really immerses you in pretty early part of the journey of horse racing. Like before you even see these horses get to the track, you kind of get to understand the breaking and training process. Um, so we have experiences, whether it's, you know, the babies, the training, it's at the farms, it's at the racetrack. We try to do as much as we can to entertain uh, our owners physically and then uh, virtually through the app. And then we also have uh, our My Racehorse shop, which is really fun because you can go and get, you know, custom merch where you put your horse's name um, right on the merchandise. And uh, we try to do like fun, creative looks for every horse or, or for a lot of the horses. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot to get out of it. It's a whole, it's a whole experience. It's not just, it's not just ownership of a, an asset. Like it's so much more than that. And you get so emotionally, you know, invested uh, and sort of the next frontier that we're working on, which is going to require a big tech investment, um, which I'm part of the team that's kind of helping to create a vision for what we're going to look like in the next, you know, six to 18 months. And part of that is creating more, engagement opportunities in the product itself. So within the app where you can, mm -hmm. you know, connect with other owners and, you know, 
Could you start group chats and things like that? So we're working on a lot of fun new things that are going to be rolling out, uh, I would say, in the next six to 18 months. Any any teasers that you can that you can uh, you know spread for for just for old time's sake? You know, some something <laughs> that you can share. Uh, I mean, it's it doesn't sound exciting when I say it, but it's super exciting to me as a marketer, and I think it's going to make the user experience like ten times better. But we're just working on ways. You know, I know a lot of people say you know personalization is key, like in in marketing, but there is so much that goes into being able to personalize an experience at the user level. So just mm-hmm. understanding, you know, your registration data, your activity, organizing that data in a way that's actionable and then creating content that's specific to your, your kind of situation. So a lot of big businesses, I think, have, have figured out how to do it well. I think smaller businesses struggle and we're still, you know, we're still sm- on the smaller side and kind of in startup mode. So I'm really excited that we have the budgets and the the time and the team to to build some of these personalization tools where when you sign into my resource, you know, you'll get um, suggestions for either events or horses or activities that are specific to either your past behavior, your region, things like that, your age um, that could help us out. And then we, we want to build out a loyalty program eventually. Like right now we just have a gifting program. So some of our VIP, you know, owners will get, you know, a box or a gift or something like that that has some some things in it, but we want to formalize the VIP program, kind of like a, you know, American Express rewards or, or something like that. So, um, you know, a lot of these things are seem basic, but there's a lot that goes into it. So I think it's exciting that we're just going to make the experience a lot more modern, a lot more personalized, um, and hopefully be able to give people exactly what they want out of ownership since there's so many different ways that you can experience it. Yeah, totally. I hear personalization is one of the biggest things right now too in tech, like on our end, uh, we, mm-hmm. we talk about it all the time. Like how can we make sure that when you come into our website, you feel like it was meant for you and no one else. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing, right. Exactly. So, uh, no, I totally get the hype around it and the mechanics and tactical work that go into creating a personalization experience is really tough. How did you get into racing? Not to change the subject so hard, but like, you created a company and there was like all these things about, uh, about it. So I, I was just looking at your LinkedIn earlier and, um, you have like, you call yourselves the team Rotondo. Uh, <laughs> I'm curious about like how you got into racing and like why it's been such a big part of your life up until now. Well, uh, yeah. Team Rotondo is, is a core part of the story, but, uh, I grew up riding. So I had been on horseback since I was five. I rode super competitively until college, um, then took a bit of a step back, went to school. I still joined the equestrian team in college at Boston University. I think it was a club team at the time, um, but still was actively riding. And then first job out of school, it was pretty terrible time to graduate. There wasn't a lot of jobs at that time. Um, So I picked up like a part-time gig uh, in PR for the Winter Equestrian Festival, which is in Wellington, Florida, where I competed my whole life. And just, I was writing stories and helping with website and and doing newsletters and just kind of the core PR and marketing communications work. Um, And I wanted to get an internship um, because that's what you did when you graduated, when I graduated, because again, no jobs. (laughs) So I was like, all right, I'm going to bartend and waitress and I'm going to get this internship in Boston where I was living at uh, an advertising 
uh, agency because I wanted to go into advertising. So I got a job as an intern at CTP. And at the time they, and they still do work with Breeders' Cup, but they ran the Breeders' Cup World Championships website, communication, social, like they're involved in a ton of different things for, for, for Breeders' Cup. And Breeders' Cup is like the world championships of racing. I mean, it's the Super Bowl. It's the, it's the title championship for several different racing divisions. It's a two-day event. It's televised. It's a huge deal. Um, I mean, it's the horses that become named to the champions of the year. Mm-hmm. So I just like rocketed to the top. So I get into this ad agency and they're like, oh, you're the horse school. So you're going to, you're going to work on the horse account. So I, and I didn't know about racing. I just knew horses because I'd mm-hmm. grown up riding, but I had no idea anything about horse racing. And I come from a, an entrepreneurial family and I, I recognized an opportunity when I started working for Breeders' Cup that they were not giving social media like any mind share. And so I came in and I was like, you need someone to manage your social media. This is like a very important platform and businesses need to pay more attention. This isn't just Twitter and Facebook. This is, this is going to be a big deal. So they're like, okay, you do it. So they hired me and I was like, okay, I wasn't expecting that to happen. <laughs> like I just pitched them kind of on a whim, fake it till you make it. And I got hired on the spot. And then I started exclusively, like I was a contractor, but I started just doing social media for Breeders' Cup full time. And I had to learn the ropes pretty quickly. So uh, one of the guys who oversaw content at Breeders' Cup was named Peter Rotundo. Last name should sound familiar. Mm-hmm. And he was my, like, you know, he was my mentor in all things horse racing. And he helped catch my mistakes when they happened and educate me in the space and connect me with anybody who I needed to, to know in the industry and kind of gave me the boot camp version of how to be, you know, an insider in racing. And over about a year's time, I became an expert and uh, ended up leaving to go back to the agency world for a couple of years because I felt, you know, still young and I hadn't really gotten that like official job job out of school, kind of had just created my own jobs along the way. I just wanted to see if I liked that route. Um, So I took a little bit of time off, went back to the real world for a bit, worked on Reebok and Samsung and Glidden Paint and a whole bunch of random accounts uh, at Race Point, and then ended up just getting drawn back into the horse racing world and had an opportunity to start Grand Slam and seized it. And um, that reconnected me with Pete, who uh, I hadn't spoken to in like a couple of years. And then we reconnected. Uh, and then long story short, we ended up, you know, getting married eventually. And that's team Rotundo was his, uh, him, his father and his father's friend, Lee, who funny, funny enough, were on a reality TV show called horse players. You should look it up. It's really funny. Really? Horse, horse players. So they were team Rotundo on the show. And, uh, that's kind of where the name name came from. So I, I joined team Rotundo and brought a little little feminine energy to the group <laughs> okay nice you know for for the first part of that story I was like wait was Peter you're related to you and the short answer is yes but not yet <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so we knew each other for a long time before we even like went on a date because he you know he helped back in 2013 he just was basically like my guru in horse racing and just mm-hmm. kind of showed me the ropes and he still is. Heck, he makes me sound way smarter than I am when it comes to this business. I mean, he has 
decades worth of experience working in horse racing. He's never left it. And, you know, we, we work from home, both of us, and I'll be here in the office kind of on a call and he'll hear me talking. And then in the other room, he'll text me, like he'll text me something and I'll say it on a call and I'll be like, Oh, I sound so smart because oh. <laughs> he knew that like so-and-so knew so-and-so or, or whatever. Like he just knows so much about every aspect of racing, whether it's the trainers, the owners, the jockeys, TV landscape, everything. Um, mm-hmm. So he's still, he's still hooking it up years later. Nice. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> so when, when you got into horse racing, it was kind of like through like happenstance, right? It was like serendipitous almost that you ended up here and, and like super involved in horse racing. Do you find uh, that you've kind of shifted your passion from equestrian jumping to, to horse racing, or are you still very much like into this um, jumping hunter jumpers? Or I, I'm not exactly sure what you did actually. I did. I did hunter jumpers. Um, and I mean, horse racing has just consumed my life. Yeah. <laughs> There's no room for anything else anymore. No, I, I still was riding for a little bit. And, uh, then I got pregnant with my daughter and I had to take a step back because of that. And so I ended up selling my, my horse that I was riding. Um, she was a jumper and, uh, I haven't gone back into it. I would love to, like, I would love to get back into showing, but right now, I mean, it's crazy with a, with a a toddler and my job, it's just, there's not enough time in the day already. So hobbies have sort of been pushed aside, which is why it's so awesome to work in racing because you still get to like, you're working, but you still get to, you know, have something you're really passionate about at the same time. So, um, and I think the balance too, like at Grand Slam, we were in the trenches a lot, like at the races all the time. And it was so fun. And you're capturing content, you're going behind the scenes and you're immersed in all these stories. But now my job is a lot more traditional in the sense that I'm, you know, interviewing MarTech vendors and um, <laughs> running, you know, managing teams. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, more about strategic partnerships and, and things like that. So it's, it's a nice balance though. Cause I, I think I always had a, uh, desire to do something really interesting and important and like have a big, big time job. Um, and so starting grand slam was just like a stepping stone, uh, and what you learn being a founder of a company and running a company from the ground and building it from the ground up for several years, definitely put some hair in your chest. (laughs) Um, as far as navigating everything that comes with running a business, Uh, And so this is a different type of challenge, you know, being part of such a, you know, new product and new space and the volatility with just, you know, working with a living, breathing thing and the comms around it are so crazy and exciting, like being able to communicate with owners on, you know, outcomes of certain situations or get their input on where a horse should go next or, whatever it may be, it's, it still has that level of like, okay, this is totally fun and exciting and crazy, but at the same time, there's also at least some structure and there's like an ability to see what's going to happen in the next year or so. So that's, that's kind of nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you have like kind of the, I wouldn't, I, I'm nervous to call it safety of, of like working for a company, but at, because at the same time, it's, you're still like kind of at a startup. So it's, volatile 
but there is kind of that like understanding right that okay next week we'll still be here (laughs) clients will still be around I imagine I don't know if 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 that's the case totally it's a different kind of pressure than when you are the top of the ladder like yeah you know like you still you still have to hit your numbers and hit your goals and I care about my team and it's funny like I was just talking to my family recently about the whole concept of of work-life balance and I'm like, why do people separate those two things as if they're two different things? I'm like, let's face it. I mean, we're at, we're at work a lot. We're at work more often than we're not. And so it is life. So why can't you care about your, your team the same way you care about your family? Like why, why not prioritize, you know, relationships with your team members in a similar way that you prioritize relationships with family. And it creates like a really awesome culture when you approach work that way, not as something to separate yourself from to create distance because it's not healthy to be working, but more as an opportunity to build really meaningful relationships with your team and tackle something together. That's really exciting. Like that's how I approach it. Um, and my team's awesome. Like I, I love working with them. I love seeing them grow. And I think that everyone really truly has a lot of fun and it helps that, you know, it's not like we're selling insurance, like no offense yeah. to anyone who does, I'm sure it's <laughs> exciting for some, but um, it helps that the topics are exciting and then there's yeah. a lot of emotion behind it. But at the same time, I do think that that's, you know, the only way to survive when you work in the modern day is, is being really passionate about what you're doing, but also who you're doing it with. Yeah, totally. I, I often find myself, um, in, in a way, like I'm part of this program called Venture for America, which recruits recent graduates into emerging startup ecosystems across the U S cool. And I find myself talking to a lot of like new recruits and they are always like, well, I don't know what to pick. Like, I want to get into this industry. I want to get into this company at this city. And at the end of the day, none of that matters. Like what matters the most in your next job is going to be the people you work with because you're going to be spending so much time with them. So like, it doesn't matter what industry, although it helps if it's something you're passionate about, right? All those things. But at the end of the day, if you love working with the people you're working with, like you're going to have fun and for your first job, like that's what matters. Yeah, totally agree. And that's just trial and error from there. Yeah. You got to have it. You got to have a fun team. You got to be respectful of them and also have a group that respects your role in the company too. So um, yeah, it's, that's actually the best part of working in a startup. I think most, most of them have that kind of culture where it's just shared responsibility and everyone kind of just trying to build something awesome um, versus some of the more established companies, which might have a little more structure, which some people crave and like, right? And so mm-hmm. that's that's your path. Like, do whatever you need to survive in um, this seven day work week cycle that we all have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Sometimes it's just like to your point about work life balance. Like sometimes it's it, it's up to you, right? Like maybe one day you have to leave at four to go do something with your daughter, right? But then you get like inspired again after dinner. Yeah. Okay, well, like you're not going to stop that inspiration or like that thought process because it's after dinner, right? Like might as well just get that done and, and have the flexibility and know that you're supported in either way. At least that's my way of thinking about it. Yeah, totally. I a hundred percent agree. And that also has to go both ways. So you can't be expected. Like if you're a lull, like my lull is like around four o'clock. I just, I was just expand. I've just like taken up so much brain power that I just kind of hit a wall. And I feel like I'm a lot less productive from like, well, 
at four, I usually also go pick up my daughter and then I play with her for a couple hours and then she goes to bed and then I get back online at mm-hmm. night. But a lot of times like I'll crush it. I'll, I'll be more productive in the hour of 730 to 830 PM than I am in three hours in the late afternoon, because it's just like the natural cycle of how your brain is working. Um, yeah. yeah. There's a strategy, there's a strategy to that. So if you run a company and you have people who are slow to respond in the afternoon, let them go home, let them do something different for a few hours. And then maybe they can come back online later and totally. re-contribute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Okay. So do you think um, kind of like wrapping up the, the conversation here, I have a couple questions and then I have rapid fire questions for you, but um, do you think there will be a my racehorse horse at the Kentucky Derby this year? Oh, it's so hard to say. Um, I think, yeah, it's impossible to say. I mean, we have a bunch of two-year-olds right now that have started this year or are going to start, um, and, and some that are going to end up turning three, uh, January 1st, because all resources turn a year older on the 1st of January. So, um, that's, that's, yeah, every horse is, yeah, their birthday is considered, I mean, they have actual folding dates, but it's technically considered every, every horse turns a year older on that date. So a lot of people want, so like for the Kentucky Derby, you have to be three-year-old, three-year-old to run. Right. So a lot of people, when they go to the sales, try to buy an early full. So a full that dropped in January, February, March, like kind of early in the season versus a full that dropped in, you know, late March, April, or May, because they're like, older and stronger and bigger by the time you get to some of these race conditions that they need to fit into. And, um, you know, so right now we have a couple two-year-olds on the ground and then, uh, that have been, that have started already. And then a, a several that still have not made their debut and probably will debut as three-year-olds. So if they, you know, like sh- are shot out of a cannon, then who knows the, the opportunities are endless. We had a horse this past year who almost made it forbidden kingdom you know, he ended up getting hurt in the race before his prep race for the Derby. Um, so he didn't, he didn't end up running, but so many things have to go right just to get to, to get to that starting gate. So we're hopeful and hopefully we, you know, it happens again for us, but, um, we also are just kind of out there celebrating all the other opportunities to have fun. And I think a win is a win, like regardless of kind of where you are, um, it feels really, really good to, to win you know, a race and it takes a lot of effort to get there. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I'm curious. Uh, I'm in St. Louis, so if my racehorse ends up being at the Kentucky Derby, I might, I might just have to drive down and and uh, get some drinks with you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let you know for sure. Um, awesome, cool. So, two more questions, and then we'll hit the rapid fire. So, um, the question I ask every guest that I'm always curious about because everybody has their own perspective is like what trends are you seeing right now in the equine industry that you feel everyone should be aware of, or at least be thinking about? Yeah. Uh, I think that I think transparency is a really important trend. And I think that it's been initiated by a lot of the younger community who's gotten into racing. And as technology has advanced as well, I think that, um, we're getting a little better, but you know, some industries, especially ones that are, you know, older, like horse racing, like there's just the way things are done is just sometimes kind of like 
behind closed doors or like hand to handshake deals and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, like there's, there's an element of like the old way of doing business. And so explaining that to like a modern community of new owners has been so challenging. And I think the only way to do it and the only success that we've seen in terms of owner feedback is just being as transparent as possible. Like this is how races, these horses are managed. Here's how much this costs, you know, between insurance and vet bills and, you know, training costs and and just different things. Like think just being as transparent as possible from an ownership standpoint, but also just from how any business in in a horse related industry is managed, I think is, is really important to, to give people that respect and, and the ability to see, you know, how things are done. Yeah, totally. And, and it's this, there's a stereotype, I think, uh, about horses and horse people and horse racing about how like it can be shady or it can be like bad for X, you know, whatever, whoever's involved. So I think you're right. There is something to be said about adding a layer of transparency and, and continuing that model. kind yeah, of Yeah. Especially showing how well cared for the horses are and how much people in the industry just love horses. Like we are all here probably because we are just in, in love with the animals. And so mm-hmm. The way that they are managed is so, most of them is, is just so meticulous, especially the ones that are at the, the, the highest level. I mean, they're getting chiropractor appointments and massages and all kinds of different things, like treat all kinds of treatments. Um, you know, they're super well looked after. So I think, I just think showing people um, what goes into keeping the horses maintained um, and cared for is, is cool to see. Um and yeah, just giving people permission to be, you know, also knowing that we take care of those who, who, who work on the backstretch, uh, the grooms, you know, the people associated with the sport as well, like they keep the, the wheels turning. And I think giving people permission to enjoy the sport and knowing that those people are taken care of. Totally. Totally. That's, that's a really good call out. I appreciate you saying that too. Um, okay. Anything you wish we talked about that we didn't get a chance to, to chat over? Hmm. Man, we covered a lot of topics, like also some stuff that's so different from like interviews I've been on in the past. I feel like you, you got me to talk about stuff that I haven't talked about before. <laughs> oh, um, good. That's good. I, I would, I would, I would say, uh, who's the demo of, of the, of your listeners? Like who's listening right now that you would, that you would want me to impart any words of wisdom? <laughs> well, definitely my dad, who is my number one listener for sure. Awesome. And, hey, Dad. And, yeah, and then uh, I don't know. I get I get kind of all sorts of folks now um, from all, all all different kinds of demographics. A lot of polo players, since that's kind of where I grew up on. Um, but I think mostly it's just like I wish I knew more. I think it's like twenty to thirty five year olds listening to my podcasts. <laughs> are they people? Are they people who are trying to like make a career out of horse related businesses oh. or like, are it's just people who just enjoy, you know, finding out about others who are involved in, in a horse related business. I think the latter is probably more, more true. Yeah. Just people just curious about learning like the different um, disciplines around, around the horse world. And also I think I'm hopeful that people are using this podcast to kind of get a, a sense into like why everybody's so addicted to horses. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So yeah. What is it that makes them so addicting? I just think, um, 
anyone who knows the horse, like knows animals and has been connected with them. Like it's, it's like they have this energy that they exude and they, and you just like, it's addictive. You can't ever, it's just the way that they look at you, interact with you. They're so big and imposing and they, I mean, even how they smell, like, I think horses smell so good. Like I just love smelling, (laughs) smelling their noses. And I think one thing that's crazy is we as horse people take it for granted, having been around horses so long, like getting somebody in front of a horse who's never seen one before up close or never had an opportunity to pet an animal like that. It's a huge deal. Like it's a huge moment. And I think we love doing that at my racehorse, like bringing people in and then bringing them to the farm so they can pet a horse and just be like, Oh my God, these animals, they just, they stop you for a minute. And you're just like the beauty and the power that they have is, is awesome. And then the stories and like the feelings that they can, you know, inspire in people. I mean, with authentic, we had, you know, people who had lost loved ones and they're like, my, you know, I just lost my dad, you know, a few months ago. And, you know, we would always watch the Kentucky Derby together and he wasn't here for the first time this year, but, you know, he, you know, he was, he was wings on either side of authentic, you know, crossing the finish line and all this stuff. And it just, it's, it's a sport that, and it's a sport that can just inspire you on an emotional level because of the animals involved and the unspoken bond that that's created between the human and, and the animal that I think is so different from anything else. Um, so yeah, well, that, that's, that's, I think what we all have in common. Like we, we get that we're like, these animals are special and and we want to bring more and more people into, into their world. Really. Totally. I I couldn't agree more. Something about that bond is, it is so special and so unique. Um, so anyway, let's dive into the rapid fire questions real quick. All right. So just shoot off the top of your head, what you feel is the right, uh, right. What the right answer might be. So do you have a favorite horse you've ever ridden? Uh, well, I have, uh, my horse that I've had since he was six years old. Um, his name is Tony, call him Tone Pone. And he's, uh, just about 20, he's almost 26 now. Oh wow! Um, so he's my, he's my OG. Uh, and He's retired. He lives 30 minutes away from here. So I bring him, I bring my daughter over to see him and we hang out and give him carrots and stuff. But yeah, he's, he's been my, my favorite guy of, nice. of my history with horses. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, it lives a nice life getting carrots and apples. I'm sure. Yeah, totally. He's got like this huge field and he's, he lives outside <laughs> with a couple of friends. So yeah, he's living retirement. Nice. Um, do you have a favorite place you've ever ridden or, you know, worked with horses? So something about Santa Anita Park uh, in California just totally mesmerizes me. Like I, it was my first Breeders' Cup that I ever worked at Santa Anita and just like, first of all, working a Breeders' Cup is unlike anything. It's like working the Olympics. Like it is such an amazing thing to be a part of. And it takes such a huge effort from so many different people. And it has this like global appeal and you have all these athletes from all over the world and, you know, seeing the horses in the morning and at the workouts and on the track, you're just like, Oh my God, this is crazy. This is the best of the best all coming together in one place. And there's, there's nothing like seeing that level of, of athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so I, my first one ever was at Santa Anita and just like with the San Gabriel mountains in the background and the sunrise. And it just, it just was incredible. So Santa Anita is really special to me. I haven't actually ridden a horse there, but, um, I've been around horses many times out there. I've been back a bunch of times since my first uh, time in 2013. And it's just a really special place. Yeah. It gave me chills thinking about like the dewy morning with the mountains in the back and like the horses galloping at full speed. Uh, It is. It's the best. So two more questions. Knowing what you know now, what's one piece of advice you'd give your younger self? Uh, I'd probably tell my younger self to like slow down and listen more. I think that I had this swagger mentality of like, I know how to do everything and this is the way to do it. And I had confidence, which is great because you, you want to have that confidence to put yourself in a position to succeed and kind of get where you want to be. But at the same time, like it doesn't have to be binary. Like you can have confidence, but you can also appreciate that others have been through more than you and listen to their advice and be open to that. I think if I had done that a little earlier, um, might've been a little, I mean, I am, I'm happy with my career kind of path and I've definitely accomplished a lot at this point, but, um, I don't think it ever hurts for people to make sure that they're, they're listening more than they're speaking. (laughs) Totally. And then the last question is like, um, how can people get in contact with you or, or plug, plug my racehorse? This is like that opportunity to Oh, this is it. Okay, guys. I don't know if you heard, if you listened or fell asleep, (laughs) but uh, my racehorse is an ownership platform that allows you to get involved in fractional ownership of racehorses for a fraction of the cost. So our, you know, you can buy in for around a hundred dollars. We have yearlings, we have two-year-olds, we have hopefully horses of racing age coming back soon. Lots of different opportunities to get involved in the business. Um, I uh, can be reached on Twitter at, at social Shona. Um, but you can also email me Shona at myracehorse.com. Shoot me a note. Um, we are hiring for some new positions very soon. So those jobs will be posted, uh, within the next week or so. Um, it's really fun place to, to be. So, um, yeah, hit me up. We'd love to chat. Awesome. (laughs) Thank you so much Shona for your time and, uh, really, really appreciate you and, and learning so much about this, uh, this industry. I I hadn't had a chance to to really dive deeper into racing. So thank you. Yeah, of course. I got a lot of other, um, there's tons of people who work at my resource. If you're looking for, for more people to chat with who work in different parts of it, like obviously I'm more marketing side, but, um, some of our racing managers do a ton of work, like hands-on with the horses and the trainers and they're at the track all the time and on the backside, um, that just hustling all the time. So uh, a lot of interesting stories within the company itself, for sure. Nice. Yeah. I'll definitely be hitting you up for that. <laughs> cool. cool. Disclaimer, no information provided on Horse People podcasts related to my racehorse constitutes or is meant to be an offer to sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy securities. My racehorse offers securities only through prospectus or other offering material in compliance with the Securities Act of 1933. Any potential purchaser of a security offered by my racehorse must meet minimum suitability standards required by law. All investing involves risks including loss of principal. For additional information, including copies of offering circulars, visit myracehorse.com slash disclaimer.